You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, grab them. Open them up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 32. We're going to read a longer passage than I will preach from this morning. This is going to be another two-part sermon. So we'll be reading Mark 2, 32, all the way to 45, but I will only be preaching on the first couple of portions of it, and the rest will be next. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. This is God's Word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, again, he began to tell them what was, going to hap- what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and and with the baptism which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to uh, him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as it is preached, it will be preached accurately and faithfully. But we also pray that your spirit would work in us so that as we hear your word, the word of your son, that we would treasure it, that we would heed your warnings, we would trust your promises. We pray that you would open up blind eyes and deaf ears. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I see that we have a lot of kids here, and that is good. This is where we want kids to be. And you will not let anybody tell you that you will not understand everything, anything. You guys can understand a lot that you will uh, hear. You can, you can remember the most important things. And yes, the older you get, the more you're going to understand. Of course, that's true. But now you can understand the most important things, and you can even remember them and tell your parents after church. You can remember the story. So here's the story. Jesus is walking down the road and he's going to Jerusalem with his disciples. So Jesus is walking to Jerusalem with his disciples. And this time he's going to Jerusalem. The reason he's going is to go die on a cross, 
That's the reason he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross. And there's people with him who are, who are really nervous. Some are very excited because they don't think he's going to die. They think he's going to go kill all his enemies. And they're very happy because they hate his enemies. Other people are terrified because they know people are very angry that Jesus is coming. So they don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> so Jesus says to his disciples, he takes them with him. He says, it says he takes them aside and he says, this time I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be killed. But I will not stay dead. After three days, I will rise from the dead. And then two of his disciples, Jesus had how many disciples? Who can tell me how many disciples? He had 12, okay. So he had two disciples. Their names were James and John, and they, had to be, they, they happened to be brothers. And they came up to him and they said, uh, Jesus, we're going to ask you a question. And you have to agree to say yes before we even ask the question. Have you ever asked your parents that? I want you to say yes. Well, you haven't even said what you're asking for. So they said, we want you, you're going to get a throne. We know you're going to get a throne. Can you make me be on your right side and him be on the left side? We want to be the most important people in all the world. Now, Jesus, they said, Jesus, you're going to get the biggest throne, but can we have little thrones beside you? We want, they wanted people to think that they were somebody who helped Jesus save the world. Yes, Jesus was the main saver, but I helped Jesus. It was me and Jesus who helped save the world, who helped save the church. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Did Jesus need anybody's help to save the church? No. Did Jesus, Jesus saved the church by taking her punishment. On the cross, Jesus was punished by God. And the disciples didn't get the church's punishment. Only Jesus did. And Jesus said, I came to save. I came to serve. Jesus didn't come so that the church should do good things for him. Jesus came to serve the church. And he is a savior all by himself. So you can remember that. Jesus didn't need any help to save people. Jesus doesn't even need your help to save you. He does it all by himself. All right. The first point of the sermon today is this. No Christian will share the burden or the glory of salvation with Jesus. Is that up there? Yeah. No Christian will share the burden or the glory of salvation with Jesus. Let's read verse 32 again, just the first part. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. He's walking to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, you might say, was a powder keg at that, at that point. It is a bunch of explosives waiting for a fuse, waiting for a spark. Everyone knew who Jesus was in all the land. Everyone knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Now, there were crowds that loved him. They, they loved that he was the rescuer. They loved that he had finally come to fulfill all the Old Testament. They'd been reading these things and listening to their parents tell them that since they were very little. And they're very excited that the Old Testament... 
All the Old Testament passages are about to come true. They knew this. They were excited. But then there were other people who hated Jesus. Everyone knew who he was. And our text tells us that he's on the road going to Jerusalem and that some were amazed and some were afraid. What was definitely not going to happen was nothing. Everyone knew something big was going to happen. They were sure of it and they were right. Jesus seemed to be walking into a trap. Jesus seemed to be walking into a trap because the leaders hated him. And the Romans also hated anybody who said he was king. So it looked like Jesus was walking into a trap, but it was a trap that he had proved that he had the power to conquer. Right? Jesus proved that he was stronger than Samson. Samson had lived over a thousand years before that, and they had tried to capture Samson a thousand years before that, and they couldn't capture Samson until, of course, he had his hair cut off. And Jesus proved that he was more powerful than Samson. Remember, Jesus did so many miracles. He proved that he's in control of sickness and death. He's, he's in control of the waves. He's in control of the wind. He's in control of food. He's in control of everything. So the people who knew Jesus was walking into a trap, some of them were really happy. The ones who loved Jesus because they're like, Jesus is going to fight his enemies finally and he's going to kick them. He's going to destroy them. He's going to win. And they're very excited. But others were very worried because they weren't maybe sure that Jesus could beat his enemies. And they were worried because they're with Jesus. We're going to face a fight and I think maybe we're going to lose. So some were worried that he would conquer his enemies and other people were worried that somebody was going to take Jesus' life away. But both of them were wrong. Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to destroy the Romans, the enemies of God. But neither was Jesus going into Jerusalem so that people would take his life away. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to lay his life down. Let's see this in verse 32. Let's continue reading in 32. I'll show you this. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was, going, uh, what was to happen to him saying, see, we are all going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days he will rise. Jesus wasn't going to kill his enemies, but he also wasn't going to be overpowered by them. He was going to lay down his life. And the way Jesus proved that he would lay down his life, that it wasn't being taken to him, was by being raised from the dead. See, any criminal can say, yes, I'm being put to death, but no one's taking my life, I'm giving it away. How would you know if that guy's lying? If he stays dead. Jesus proved that he laid his life down by being raised from the dead on the third day. Now James and John were part of the group that was pretty excited that he was finally going to face his enemies. They're like, it's about time. We've been asking you to do this for a while. We've wanted you to go to battle with the Pharisees and with the Romans because we're sure you're going to win. And they were already, they're already planning the victory parade. See this in verse 35. James and John. They're sure there's going to be a battle. They're sure Jesus is going to win. They're sure they're going to help Jesus. 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So they're already trying to figure out where they would fit on the Mount Rushmore of the Messiah. Obviously, Jesus, come on, obviously Jesus is going to be in the middle. His is going to be slightly higher. We don't want to be arrogant. Jesus is the main Messiah. But we're going to help. He should get most of the glory for saving the church. But we should get second and third most. People should thank Jesus for saving people, but you know what? They should also thank us. You know, if, if they say thank you, we would say, yes, yes, we did our part. Jesus did more, but we did our part to save you. And definitely, and, and people should definitely wait on Jesus hand and foot. Well, if he's the Messiah, if he's going to win this big victory, well, then of course they should serve him. They should give him cups of golden goblets of, of, uh, of, uh, of wine and of the, the finest drink and of the finest food. And, and people should, they should even make clothes for him. They should help him get dressed. They should, they should carry him around in a, in a litter. They should, they, should, they should do everything for Jesus. They should clean his house. They should do all kinds of wonder. They could serve Jesus but they should also do that for us because we help Jesus. Jesus responds to them in verse 38. Let's read that. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which, with, uh, which I am, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now, You've all been asked rhetorical questions before. You can make yourself a fool by answering that question poorly. Can you do what I'm about to do? Yes, I can. The answer was no, James and John. They could not. Now, what does it mean? Let's unpack this for a second. What does it mean to drink the cup and to be baptized? This is a really important thing for us to understand. First of all, what does it mean to drink the cup that Jesus is to drink? Well, we read in, in Isaiah 51 that this means the cup of God's wrath. The punishment that God's people had piled up. The punishment that, that God's people had earned for every single sin that they had committed or will commit in the future. It's like a cup filled with punishment. Did you know that God has wrath towards sin? Anger? Vengeance? Hatred towards sin? He is a God who hates sin exactly as much as it should be hated. He hates sin exactly as much as He loves goodness. See, the more you love health, the more you would hate sickness. The more you love life, the more you would hate death. The more you love people being kind, the more you hate it when people are unkind. God isn't controlled by his anger. He's patient. He's not wild. He will not overreact. But he does have perfect 
perfect, perfect justice. And for each person, after death, they will face God in judgment and receive exactly the punishment that they deserve. And the illustration that Isaiah used in other places in Scripture as well is a cup. A cup perfectly measured. Nothing less, nothing more. Now, the Bible describes hell as the place where you will eternally receive the perfect punishment you deserve. Hell is not itself the punishment, although it kind of is, but more than that, it's the place where you receive the punishment that you deserve. Hell is the place where the cup of God's judgment is poured out. But God loved the world so greatly that He sent His Son to drink that cup for sinners. That was the cup that Jesus was to drink. And it was a cup that Jesus was terrified to drink from. Jesus wasn't afraid of anything except that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And he prayed to God to take that cup away from him. He said, if there's any other way to save my church, any way that I don't have to drink the cup of wrath for them, can you please, please pick that way? But if there isn't another way, I will drink it. And Jesus didn't say that calmly. Jesus cried out in agony when he was saying that, and he even was sweating drops of blood. Jesus was not going to drink the cup of wrath, the punishment for one person. Not for two. Not for a hundred, not for a thousand, not for ten thousand, not for a hundred thousand, not for one million, not for ten million, not for a hundred million. A vast multitude of people too many to count. Try counting the sand on the seashore. Try counting the stars in the heavens. The Lord Jesus would take the cup, would drink the cup of wrath for a vast multitude of sinners. He willingly laid down his life because he loved this group of sinners. So he went to the cross. And on the cross, in three hours, he drank dry the cups of every Christian who would ever be. The Christians who lived before him in the Old Testament and the Christians who hadn't yet been born in the New Testament. He drank dry the cups of every Christian who would ever live. Cups which they would have taken an infinite amount of years to drink. And he drank those cups dry. And after he finished drinking those cups dry, at the end of three hours, he cried out in a loud voice as if he was slamming an empty cup on the table. And he said, It is finished. And Jesus was spent. And he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Dear Christian, this is why the Bible says there is therefore no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying there was never any condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Or God just forgot about it or he got over it. No, the reason the the Bible can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because Jesus took that condemnation. He drank it dry for every Christian who would ever live because he loved you so greatly. The cup is empty. Someone else drank it for you. Which is why we sing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Dear Christian, that is why God will not punish you when you stand before him in judgment. Because he sent his son to take it for you. Now, dear unbeliever, let this ring in your ears. In Hebrews 9, it says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Psalm 143 says, enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Dear non-Christian, your condemnation is growing, minute by minute, day by day. Your own conscience betrays you. God's law testifies against you. You haven't worshipped God as you ought. You've lied, you've hated, you've lusted. You've not honored your parents, you've misused God's name. Your thoughts, your words, and your actions, these are all piling up like a cup filling up. A cup that you would never be able to finish. There is no, yes, I'll face God, and yes, I'll take what I deserve, and then when I'm done, no. There is no when I'm done. It is a cup you will never be able to finish, and yet you will never be able to stop drinking it. But if you repent of your sin, and if you trust the death of Jesus instead of you, and in His resurrection from the dead on the third day, you will be saved. Jesus wants us to know that He is a solo Savior. It was Christ alone. The disciples were not able to help Jesus with this. They weren't able to help him save the church. They were not even able to help him save themselves. It was a one-man mission. Dear Christian, you do not help one thing in your salvation. Trust in Christ alone. Christ alone bears the burden for saving the church. And Christ alone will get the glory for saving the church. And if you want some glory for being saved, you're probably not a Christian. If you think you're going to be saved because you and Jesus make a good team, you're going to hell. And that cup is full. But are you resting in Christ alone? then that cup is empty. Upside down, 
sitting on a table, having been slammed there by Jesus. The cup of your punishment, dear Christian, resting in Christ is empty. It is bone dry. Jesus also mentions the baptism. Did you notice that? He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? Jesus alone would die for the sins of the church. We know what baptism is. You go underneath the water, you're buried kind of figuratively, and then you're raised from the dead. So it's like death, burial, resurrection. It's also a washing away of sins or a symbol of that. Jesus alone would die for the sins of the church. Jesus alone would be buried for the sins of the church. And Jesus alone would be raised from the grave for the salvation of the church. And Jesus alone can wash away, think of baptism, can wash away the sins of the church. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the effort of James and John and Jesus. (laughs) Nope. No. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not Jesus' blood and my efforts. Not Jesus' blood and me going to church. Not Jesus' blood and me not looking at pornography. No. The only thing that saves us is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Or baptism, as you might say. Jesus' baptism. There is no Christian who will share the burden or glory of salvation with Jesus. Take that burden off your shoulders. You couldn't bear it. Jesus suffered and died alone. Our second point is this. All Christians, so we started by saying no Christians, all Christians are to die to self and live for Christ. So even though Jesus asks them rhetorically, are you able to do this? And the answer was obviously no, and they were foolish enough to say, yes, we're we're able. He does say they will share in his baptism and cup in a way, not along with him, but because he drank it, they're going to share the results. Their lives will be changed to glorify Christ. Let's read this 39b to 40. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will, be, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, there's two ways to look at this, and they're both intended. The first is that these people would suffer as apostles. And secondly, they would suffer as Christians. Let's look first at them suffering as apostles. So, 12 12 apostles, we've already got that, right? Thank you to the children. Judas is going to die, he's going to kill himself, and he's replaced by who? Matthias, right? So now we've got 12 again. But... God wanted to do something to show that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, were also included in the church, so he added somebody late, and that guy's name was Paul. So now we got 13. Of the 13 apostles, 12 were martyred. And John is the only one, he might have been martyred, we're not sure. 
He's the only one we don't know for sure was martyred. But he, it's not like he lived a fantastic life uh, riding in, in stagecoaches and in golden chariots. John was sent into Patmos, which was a prison island of the Roman Empire, and we have no reason to believe he didn't die in prison, although there's some myths that say he left and he went to Ephesus. There's no proof of that. When Paul, that 13th, was added, remember his commission, his commission was, Jesus said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Now, it wasn't just that only the apostles were persecuted. But if you read the book of Acts, mainly the apostles were persecuted. There was a special way that they were called to suffer for the gospel. Other Christians were, but the apostles were the special focus of the persecution and hatred. There's a very special way in which Jesus would say to Paul, you suffered for the church. You suffered for my name. Not that Paul took the punishment of God for the church. No way. But he did suffer for the church, didn't he? And so did Peter and John. Just not to take their punishment. So they would suffer because they were apostles. But they would also suffer because they were Christians. All Christians. If you have your Bible, you can look in 2 Corinthians, uh, in, in the, the book of 2 Corinthians, and you, you see, um, actually I've got my quote wrong here, but I'll just read it. 2 Corinthians, you can find it later for bonus. He died for, uh, he died for all that those who, li who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for, uh, whom, <laughs> but for whom, ah, I'll say it again. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's a mouthful. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In Galatians 2 verse 20, I got this reference. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you belong to Christ, his death was yours. And his resurrection was also yours. Your old self has died. The time that you spent living for yourself is done. It's over once you become a Christian. You receive a new life. And as a new creation, you're created in Christ Jesus to do works that he prepared for you to do. You're no longer an enemy. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to your own self. Now you're a son or daughter of God with Christ's relationship to God. And so you have Christ's relationship to the law of God. A heart that loves God. A heart that loves God's law. And that means that you would enjoy honoring God even if it would cause you to suffer. And it does. And that's what baptism signifies, is that we share in Christ's death and resurrection. That our death was when Christ died, and our life was when he raised. And we will need to be reminded of this. 
I'm sure as I was saying this, you were, you were thinking, well, I don't always feel like that. I don't always love God's law. I don't always, what's wrong with me? Am I not a Christian? Paul often reminded the church of this, which means we shouldn't be surprised if we need to be reminded of it as well. Paul loved to remind the church of that. And he would say, you are washed. That's the old you. Or, you were baptized. You were baptized into his death and into his resurrection. If you died to sin, how can you live in it? Paul will say, you were called to die to self if you are a Christian. But the lie is that this will be less of a life. That there will be more joy if you didn't live as a Christian, but you, you know what? You've got to take the one that has less joy. No. Even though you have died to self, even though you're no longer living for yourself, even though you are considering yourself dead and, and only living for Christ, it will be more joy. It will be more satisfying. Because there is no greater joy than enjoying the adoption that Jesus purchased with His blood giving his life as a ransom for to be loved by God and to love God. Though we will suffer in this life for belonging to Christ, we will not suffer as he suffered. We're not suffering the punishment of God. We will not bear the condemnation for our sin because he already did. I'll take a minute to apply this. Next week, we're going to apply this to church leadership. Because Christ does if we carry on in that passage. But let's apply this just to the regular life of regular Christians. Our time is not ours. And that's good because it belongs to Christ. We've got to use our time to enjoy Him, to imitate Him, to obey Him and glorify Him. Our money is not ours. It's Christ's. Our body our sexuality, it's not ours. It belongs to Christ. Which means we're asking the question, what would glorify God according to His Word? And that's going to require self-control. It is going to require self-denial. Dear Christian, your life in your family, so your, fa your time alone or your, your time in your home, it's not yours. It's Christ's. So with your family, be thinking of how can I use this time, which doesn't belong to me, I no longer live, Christ does, for the glory of God and the good of these people. Your life in your workplace, same thing. It's not yours. It belongs to Christ. You no longer live in your workplace. Now you live for Christ's glory and also for the benefit of those people. Whether they're Christians is irrelevant. The benefit of those people, whether it be your boss, the shareholders, your employees, your colleagues, your clients. Not simply sharing the gospel, but doing good work for God's glory and for the good of the people around you. This is also true about your life in the church. It's not yours. You've died to self and now you live for Christ and so also for these people. To give to these people a community where up is up and down is down rather than the other way around. Where what is shameful is treated as shameful and where what is glorious is treated as glorious. Where sins are forgiven, not excused and celebrated. 
And where those who've lost family because of Christ, well, you give yourself to them as a comfort and as a reward. Your life, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in your church doesn't belong to you. It's a very lovely thing. You live as though you have already died. Now, kids, say a word to the kids. Jesus says that if you belong to Jesus, he died for your sins. You're not going to be punished for your sins. But he also says that you will love him. He will make you love him if you become a Christian. He will work in you that you love him, and that means you'll show that you love him by obeying him. That's how you show that you love Jesus. It's not how you earn becoming a Christian. You can't do that. Jesus did that. But those who are Christians, even kids, will show that they love Jesus by obeying him, doing what he loves. That means being kind to your brothers and sisters, being kind to other kids, to other adults. It means obeying your parents and not obeying every adult, but obeying the adults that your parents tell you to obey. It doesn't turn you into a Christian. Trusting Jesus is the only thing that turns you into a Christian, but if you do, he said it's going to change you, that you're going to start obeying him because you love him. Dear friends, I wonder if you noticed that those two illustrations that Jesus used happened to be the two ordinances that the church uses. Did you notice that? What are the two symbols that God has given to the church that he says, you make sure you give this to Christians? What's the one that is given to us at the beginning of our Christian life when somebody is welcomed as a member of the church? Baptism. And what's the one that we keep doing over and over and over again because we are very forgetful? The Lord's Supper, where we drink the cup and we eat the bread. I want to say a word to the unbelieving Christians here. You say, that's kind of an oxymoron. Well, it is, you're right. What I mean by an unbelieving Christian is the person who thinks they belong to Jesus because they have done good things. That they and Jesus together have saved them. If this is you, you're not a Christian. There's another unbelieving Christian as well is the person who says, yes, I trust Jesus for forgiveness, but I do not want a new life. I do not want to live as his son or daughter. I want to stay in my sin. The Bible says that is also not a Christian. You either trust in Christ for your righteousness, he's either your full savior or he's not your savior at all. But I want to say a word to the Christians. Your, your savior loved you so greatly that he drank the cup of wrath so that you could drink the cup of salvation, of rejoicing, of wedding feast wine. He loved you so greatly that he died your death. He took your baptism of fire where the wrath of God was poured out because he loved you, to give you new life because what he did counts for you. His death was yours. And his resurrection is yours, and you will need to be reminded of this. I am no longer my old self. I have new life in me because Jesus died instead of me and rose from the dead. So dear Christian, walk in newness of life. Don't believe the lie that the cost will be too great. 
Your Savior died to give you new life, to live as a beloved child of God with the capacity, with the ability, with a new heart to now be able to enjoy God's love and to enjoy loving Him as well. And let us not ever forget that He did this alone. And that He truly meant what He said at the end of that three-hour period of Him drinking the cup of wrath for you. He said, it is finished. There's no better words to end with than the the words of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not ask us for our help in saving anyone else, especially not ourselves. We thank you that Christ went to Jerusalem to take our punishment and to take it all by himself, Lord, because we could not stand. As, as David said in that psalm that we read, do not enter into judgment with us because we could not stand. We are grateful that we have a Savior who loved us so much that he took our punishment. We are also grateful that he loved us enough to give us new life, to put to death our old self, the one that was enslaved to sin and and lived as an enemy and even a slave to our own desires, which got us, get us into so much trouble as well as condemnation. Lord, we thank you that Christ has given us new life. And I pray that we would delight in that new life, that we would see it for what it is, a treasure. Remind us over and over again of the death and resurrection of Christ and that it was our death and our resurrection as well. We pray that you would grant life to those in this building who are not yet yours. And for those who are, Lord, we pray that we would delight in that life and live for Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name.